Welcome to the New England Law Review on Ramon podcast. I'm the Volume 48 Executive Online Editor, Louisa Gibbs. And I'm Volume 48's Editor-in-Chief, Mike Martucci. The New England Law Review is the flagship publication of New England Law Boston, which is located in downtown Boston, Massachusetts. To learn more about our institution, visit the website at nesl.edu. And to learn more about our publication, go to newenglrev, that's n-e-w-e-n-g-l-r-e-v.com. There you can find our most recent on-remand article about the Massachusetts Civil Service Commission decision reinstating six cops who tested positive for cocaine. We also have our most up-to-date Massachusetts Criminal Digest, Issue 1, our current issue, and information about our upcoming fall symposium. And speaking of which, we have here today Professor Jordan Singer of New England Law Boston and Kristen Mullen, the Volume 48 Symposium Editor, to discuss our forthcoming symposium entitled Benchmarks, Evaluating Measurements of Judicial Productivity, which will be held on Friday, November 8th at New England Law Boston. They will share some more information with us about the symposium, what inspired it, and where you can learn more about it. So thank you all for joining us. So, Professor, could you please start by just briefly explaining what bench presence means? Bench presence is, most simply, a measure of the amount of time that a trial judge spends on the bench, presiding over the adjudication of issues in a public forum. It can include time spent at trial, most obviously, but also includes time spent during doing sentencing, arraignments, motion hearings, evidentiary hearings, and the like. Bench presence is intended to quantitatively capture, in an approximate way, each court's commitment to providing procedural fairness. We know from decades of research that the legitimacy of court decisions and the legitimacy of the courts themselves rests on the belief that the procedures that they use are fair. When we think of fairness, we tend to think of equal and impartial treatment of all parties, and that's a big part of it. But procedural fairness also includes treating everyone with dignity, giving litigants the opportunity to tell their stories to the judge, and deciding cases in an open and transparent way. A judge's commitment to each of these aspects of procedural fairness is at its most visible in the open courtroom. So I believe, and my co-author Judge Young agrees with me, that tracking courtroom hours provides a rough but meaningful proxy for procedural fairness by capturing the degree to which the public and the parties are exposed to the judge's procedural safeguards. Uh, Now, Professor, uh, you mentioned that you and the Honorable Judge Young wrote uh, two articles on this topic, so I guess a two-part question. First, what inspired these articles and your proposed methodology, and then what makes that difference from others in the field now? As for what inspired them, from my perspective, uh, well, I came from a background of studying court efficiency. Court efficiency looks at how quickly and how cost-effectively the courts process cases after they're filed. And in doing that work, I noticed that many people were using the term court productivity instead of the term efficiency to get at the idea of how quickly cases are resolved. But it turns out that terminology isn't quite right. As a matter of the academic literature and the way that productivity is typically understood, productivity is a measure not just of efficiency, but also of quality. You can think of it as a measure of how quickly or how efficiently you can do something and how well it's done. So if a company makes widgets, uh, we could say that a company that makes a thousand widgets an hour is more efficient than a company that makes a hundred widgets an hour. But if those thousand widgets are awful and they break as soon as you buy them, the pro- there's no productivity. The quality is not, not very good. So a 
applied to the courts, the idea of a court being productive simply because it resolved cases quickly didn't mesh. Those cases also needed to be resolved in a way that affected the quality and the service of the, what uh, the courts were about to provide. So it bothered me a little bit that this term was being used in a one-dimensional way to describe the work of the courts. At about the same time that that was running through my head, Judge Young, independently, was a work on his own effort to measure the productivity of the federal district courts, and he decided to do it by tracking courtroom time. This was the genesis of the idea of bench presence. Judge Young was able to get a hold of internal court statistics that tracked how much time each judge spent on the bench. And in 2011, he uh, appended to a uh, summary judgment opinion uh, a list of what he called America's most productive courts. That led to a discussion between he and I, and it eventually led to the collaboration that created the bench presence articles we'll be discussing at the symposium. As far as why our methodology is different than prior models, as I mentioned, prior models have focused almost exclusively on court efficiency, and they have collapsed the definition of court productivity and the definition of court efficiency. Our model is a much broader model of productivity, one that recognizes that court productivity must also account for the quality of adjudication. And we argue that that quality can be determined by including the accuracy of the outcome and the fairness of the procedures. No one has yet been able to figure out the accuracy of the outcome, and I suppose that's a project for another day. But our effort here was to measure procedural fairness in a consistent way, hence bench presence. Wonderful. And so it seems that critics of judicial evaluation claim that analyzing the productivity of judges causes pressure to maximize output. So does bench presence avoid or solve this critique? What do you think? Well, the emphasis on court efficiency over the past 30 years has had some positive effects. We see, among other things, that courts who feel internal and external pressure to be more efficient tend to resolve cases in a more timely way. But efficiency has also had some negative effects. It's pressured uh, judges, in some cases, to prioritize time to disposition and docket clearance over all else. We don't think that's necessary, and in a sense, bench presence provides a resolution to that by requiring judges and court staff and others who use the court to think of the role of the courts in a more holistic way. Uh, in other words, the courts not only have the job of resolving cases quickly, but also they have a traditional and still critical constitutional role to provide an open forum for the resolution of disputes. In our study, we found, in fact, that there is no necessary trade-off at all between efficiency and bench presence. In many courts, judges can spend a lot of time in the courtroom and still manage to resolve their cases quickly and efficiently. So ultimately, I hope that bench presence's contribution to the larger conversation is to foster a better appreciation for the trial court's multifaceted social role. Uh, thank you, Professor. So ultimately, you ended up performing a statistical analysis on trial courts nationwide utilizing this bench present methodology. Can you explain briefly um, what your findings were? That is, maybe which courts did well and which did not. Sure. Uh, we looked at five years' worth of internal data from the administrative office of the U.S. courts. And as I alluded to before, that data is reported by the judges themselves each month. We put all the data together over five years and spun it to see what courts were doing well and what courts were not. Uh, some of the numbers, in fact, were quite discouraging. On a national level, we found that the number of total hours that federal district judges reported themselves spending on the bench fell by almost 
between October of 2007 and September of 2012. And in some district courts, the amount of time that a judge spent on the bench every year averaged less than 200 hours a year. When you think about that, 200 hours a year is less than an hour a day. And those are trial courts. So I think by any measure, at least from my perspective, that's not good enough. But we also found some courts with very high levels of bench presence. Some courts more than 700 hours per judge per year. And those courts were scattered throughout the country. We found very little connection to geography or court size. So courts such as the Eastern District of California, with only six judges, topped our charts year after year. Large courts like the Southern District of New York also did very well. But small courts also did well. The size didn't seem to make too much of a difference. What we did find is that when all was said and done, there was very little correlation between a court's level of bench presence and factors such as its size, its geography, its caseload, or its docket composition. In other words, we found no structural reason why the federal district courts cannot all raise their levels of bench presence immediately. There's nothing within the nature of their dockets that would prevent them from spending more time on the bench. So the obvious question then is why do some courts fare better than others in this area? And that's the next stage of research that we'll undertake. Although I suspect, even from this initial look, that it's largely a matter of court culture. 20 years ago, certain district courts concluded that they wanted to make themselves speedy. And so they labeled themselves rocket dockets. And they said to litigants, we promise that we will resolve your cases in a short period of time if you file your case here. And they've been able to follow through. I suspect that some districts also quietly have an internal culture in which uh, their judges are in the courtroom on a regular basis. So we have rocket docket courts. We also have high bench presence courts. Uh, and I believe that that's really a matter of internal culture. It's an area for further exploration. Great. And so going back to the upcoming symposium next week, so it seeks to use your articles as a cornerstone to frame a discussion on court productivity and evaluation at large. What discourse are you hoping arises from the event, and why is it so critical that this issue receives attention? Well, there's an old saying that what gets measured gets done. Uh, and as lawyers, as law students, and as members of the general public, I think it's important that we ask ourselves what we want out of our court system. What values do we uh, expect? What general expectations do we have of the courts? And how might we measure that? If we can articulate our expectations of the courts and find a way to measure those expectations, the courts themselves are likely to respond. So I see the symposium event as an important civic exercise. We should be having a robust discussion about what we expect of the courts and whether those expectations are realistic and what we can do to help judges and court staff meet those expectations. So I am very excited to hear the views of the symposium panelists, those people who work in the courts and work with the courts, and study the courts each day. So Kristen, as symposium editor, uh, can you tell us a bit more about the symposium itself? Absolutely. So as Louisa mentioned earlier, the symposium is next Friday, November 8th, 2013. Uh, it begins at 9 a.m. with an introduction to bench presence by Professor Singer, who's with us here today. It will be three panels. We purposely allocated three panels so that we could touch on a broad area of topics and so that we could keep each panel short, interesting, and engaging. Our first panel begins at 9 a.m. Um, our second panel is at 11, and our final panel is at 3 p.m. In the gap between our second and third panel, we will be featuring a keynote lunch 
in which Judge Young will give an address. Our panels are divided into three topic areas. The first panel will be a response to Bench Presence, the article itself, what people think about this new proposed methodology and how it could fit within the current structure of the courts. Our second panel will be looking to other methods of judicial evaluation and why they might be better or worse than Bench Presence. And our final panel will be practitioners who be commenting on how these type of methodologies play into everyday life for them. Okay, and so who else is going to come and speak on this topic at the various panels? You don't have to go through everyone, but maybe a couple names. Absolutely. So we are honored to have some great national guests this year flying in from all different universities around the country. Um, but highlighting our practitioner panel at um, 3 p.m., we have Chief Justice Paula Carey from the Massachusetts Trial Court and Court Clerk Robert Farrell from the U.S. District Court. So we're really excited to have such great local practitioners um, attending our panel and bringing in a great audience. Wonderful. Thank you, Kristen. So to learn more about the symposium, all of the information you need to know is available at our website, newinglrev newenglrev.com. There you can click on Fall 2013 Symposium on the Symposium tab drop-down box. If you wish to RSVP for the luncheon with the Honorable Judge Young of the U.S. District Court, click on the RSVP link available on that page. And also the articles that inspired the symposium are available on that same page. Again, our fall symposium is on Friday, November 8th at New England Law Boston, which is located at 154 Stewart Street in Boston. Also, times for the panels will be available online. And so, Professor and Kristen, thank you for joining me on the New England Law Review on Ramon podcast. Thank you, Louise. Thank you. Forthcoming on the podcast and online, we have our volume 48, book one, information on which is available on our forthcoming page, more from the Massachusetts Criminal Digest, including the cases of Commonwealth v. Chatham, Commonwealth v. Sylvan, and Commonwealth v. Horn, as well as coverage from the symposium. I'm the Volume 48 Executive Online Editor, Louisa Gibbs. And I'm the Volume 48 Editor-in-Chief, Mike Martucci. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for more from the New England Law Review on Iran podcast.